And now we're picking up in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Um, Last week, we took the first portion of that. Um, And we'll we'll take their reading this morning from verses 5 through 13. But our emphasis this morning will be verse number 13. Um, If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing. But in uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5, we read this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore... God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Let us pray. Father, we come to you one more time. Just to ask for grace. Some may think, Father, that too much prayer goes on in the service. In all honesty, I know that Simply don't pray enough. We don't seek you enough, Father. We're not as dependent upon you as we ought to be. So help to provoke our hearts now, Father, to have a humble posture as we approach your word, as we confess that, Father, as intellectual and academic as we can be, without you, Father, without your Son, without your Spirit, we'll walk away this morning with nothing. Maybe even worse than nothing. As we know that um, knowledge puffs up, Father. We know that sometimes we can utilize the Word of God in inappropriate means, as in inappropriate means, Father. We can receive it in such a way, Father, to steer us in the wrong direction, to create a legalistic type of heart. Father, we know that, um, but we know that it is a means of grace. We know that you've given us your Word by your Spirit, Father, to lead and to guide us into all truth. So, Father, we pray this morning that we would not wield it according to our own desires, but that you would wield it, Father, in our hearts, for yours. Father, that you would take great pleasure this morning in making this body of believers more like your Son. Father, we cannot accomplish this in and of ourselves. So we beg you, we plead with you, Father, to accomplish this work. Go with us now, Father. And help us to be faithful, not only in the giving, but, Father, also the receiving. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, even take the word that's read and preached, Father, to my own heart. And use it, Father, to make me more like your Son. Father, I need more grace. I need to be more gracious. I need more love. I need to be more loving, Father. I need your holiness. I need to be more holy. Father, and I cannot do that apart from you. So go with us now, Father, 
and do the unthinkable, do the eternal, do the incalculable, Father, by the power of your Spirit. Do only things this morning that God can do. And may we say with confidence that we met with Christ as a result of it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. As I mentioned last week, we took up the first portion of this text in verses 12 and 13. And we're just going to hit the ground running. I know that in verse number 13, we had somewhat made application um, to the text interpretation, but it was somewhat superficial and gave most of our time and attention to verse number 12 with the emphasis on that command. That number one, there was a chief command in these verses in which everything else in verse 12 was conditioning that command. And that command was ultimately to work out your own salvation. Um, that as a result of verses 5 through 11, which actually in Philippians chapter number 1, after Paul gives a report in verse 27, um, he gives the first command of the, entirety, of the entire letter, this affectionate letter that he writes to Philippi, and he gives them this command, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that you could almost say that that's the thesis verse for the entire um, book of Philippians if you were looking for somewhat of a thread in which to build the entire tapestry on of this letter. That Paul's desire is, is that, that at the end of the day, the gospel which Jesus Christ, or the people which Jesus Christ died for, that good news of salvation, um, would weigh out in the lives of the people so that at the end of life and in this life now, Jesus Christ re receives that which he bought. Just like you and I would go to a, a store and buy something and pay a certain amount for it. Our desire is, is to get that back out of it, to utilize it in the way that we desired. In a similar way, Jesus Christ enters into the world, gives His life on Calvary according to the plan of the Father by the power of the Spirit and secures the salvation of a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And He buys those people with His own blood. It is so holy, it is so precious. And what Christ desires to have is a people for Himself, a holy people, a people who are changed. And that should be our goal because that was the goal of the cross. Not only to secure the salvation for a people eternally in the sense of quantitative, um, a length of life, but a type of life. Not only after death, but also in life. Jesus Christ dies to secure a holy people. Thus he goes on to instruct us what that holy people is to look like or are to look like. Um, and he goes on to encourage them, not only as individuals, but, but, but mostly as a corporate body. And he says in the beginning of chapter 2 and verse number 1, that if these things are true, then fulfill his joy by being like-minded, that they are to, to, to um, pursue unity within the body of Christ. So verses 27 through 30, you actually see the church is... Um, response to the world. You see that there's going to be many adversaries, and they are to stand as soldiers um, linked together in arms in a battle against their adversaries. And there's many blessings and benefits to that. And that's what Paul goes over. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he picks up, and in some sense is saying, if that's possible, if that's going to be possible, then you must actually bind arms. There has to be unity within the body. Um, and he gives us in verses 5 through 11 the preeminent perfect, supreme example of what that type of life is. 
Um, that, that the way that we are to have unity, the means to accomplish that in verses 1 through 4 are a humble spirit and a, an attitude of self-forgetfulness. That we are to embody the very spirit of Jesus Christ in his humility. That that is going to be the grace that God extends to us to unify us and bring us together. What does that look like? Verses 5 through 11. It looks like Jesus Christ humbling himself as a servant. um, Literally becoming a bond slave. Why? So that he could earn the life that we couldn't earn and give it to a people who don't deserve it. He humbles himself, becomes a servant, takes upon himself um, humanity, becomes the God-man, and lays aside certain privileges, rights, and honors for the purpose of saving a people for himself. If that's the case, Paul says in verse number 12, therefore... That's a, you, could, you could literally interpret that or translate that because of this. If that's true, Paul is saying, then my beloved, is he pleased with them as a family, as a brother in Christ, as a father in the faith for many of them, as he was instrumental in planting this church and God's work in this church. And I want you to read it with a little bit of sanctified imagination and not just as a black and white monotone man who's writing a theological treatise. Therefore, my beloved... Like I just got on the, off of the, uh, he just ascended the Mount of Transfiguration, the highest of highest, almost entered into the Holy of Holies of Scripture. And he's speaking about Jesus Christ um, descending and condescending and God exalting Him to be Lord over all creation, the head of His body. And in some sense, he's looking at them eyeball to eyeball now with a pen and by the power of the Spirit. And he's saying, if that's the case, If this is true of you, chapter 2, verse number 1, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love in your hearts, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. If this is the case, look to Christ. And if you look to Christ, brothers, sisters, my beloved, those whom I love, as a father, I'm just pleading with this child. If that's the case, And this is what you must do. You must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, It cannot be said of those at Philippi that you were passive in your salvation, passive in your sanctification, that you just kind of threw your hands down, enjoyed your salvation, uh, put up your tent, hid from the world until Jesus came, and man, what an eternity we're going to have. No, Jesus Christ purchased the people for Himself and gives to those people um, a heart in which the Spirit of God is operating to bring them to an obedient life and they're to live that life out in certain condition that Paul says here that, that, that one of the conditions that are going to modify your walk, that you're going to work it out, not work for, but work it out, work out the salvation that He purchased on your behalf and gave to you with fear and trembling. Thus, we looked at uh, number two, the conditions necessary to obey the command. And Paul gives several. You know, that revelation was what informed his obedience. And that he, he speaks to his beloved and he, and he argues for a consistent walk with godly character. That's what I argue for this morning and last week. That if you're a Christian, that if you have been blood-bought, born again, saved by the grace of God, repented, uh, repentance and faith, have true godly sorrow, seeking to walk after Him, then th- this is your call, brethren. That God calls, and He just doesn't call, He commands you. 
Like if that is such, if, if, if salvation is so glorious as that, and Jesus Christ purchased it, and He is Lord, then, then, that, then, then, then you're to come under His submission. What does that look like? It looks like obedience to Christ. That's what working out your salvation is. That it's obedience, but it's not just dutiful, obligatory, apathetic, indifferent type of stoicism. Um, it's a salvation that you're working out that gift with fear and trembling. A fear, to, a fear of offending God, a reverence, a respect for Him. And at the same time, a joy immeasurable because of the grace that God has given um, to each of you. And at the end of that, you may be wondering, <laughs> you know, who is able to accomplish such a thing? You know, that's what I think of in my own life. I am by nature, I'm an introspective man even on many days to my detriment, in which I continually look in the mirror. Many people will look and they'll say, how humble of a man. Let me just say that there is a humility that masquerades itself that is nothing more than pride. And it's even more dangerous than, than arrogant pride um, because it deceives itself into being humble. And we have to be careful. That the longer that we look in the mirror and we keep our eyes on ourselves, the true humility, yes, it grovels for a while under the lordship of Jesus Christ and gives him the worship due his name. Yet at the same time, it manifests itself in a courageous, a courageous spirit and a bold um, inner man because it looks to Christ. It gets up and it gets to work. Um, it's not someone who, who grovels in the dust with a worm type of mentality. Um, that, that truly is a prideful man because he won't take his eyes off of his own soul. He thinks himself completely unworthy and he will not grasp the reality that Jesus Christ saved him and made him worthy. It is to trample under feet practically the blood of Christ and what He came to accomplish. That if you want to honor Christ, a truly humble man is a bold man. He's a courageous man. He's a faithful man. Um, he spends time worshiping, but that worship promotes pro provokes him and catapults him into the very service of God. He knows he must work out his own salvation. Thus he does it with diligence, with fear, with trembling, with total dependence. So it's easy to get through verse 12 and be like, oh man, who can do that? I'll tell you who can do that. A man who has Christ in him can do that. That that is the comfort applied to this command this morning. There is a comfort in knowing that your salvation in one aspect is wholly, completely God's work. That yes, you are to give yourself over to working your salvation out with fear and trembling. Yet at the same time, you are to take great comfort this morning in knowing that that too is God's work. You say, I'm concerned with my salvation. How much more do you think that Jesus Christ is? You say, I'm, I, I'm concerned with my holiness. How much more do you think that the Spirit of God is? He is much more concerned about your holiness than you are. Thus, He will take everything, all means, all avenues, um, righteous and unrighteousness, um, holiness and even sin, and utilize it for His glory. Not so that we can sin more, that grace may abound, Paul says. Um, God forbid. Yet at the same time, we recognize that God, who is at work, will utilize all means. That God has a purpose. That God has an intent in our lives. And He will bring it about. So that we should take great comfort for the next few minutes. I hope to just comfort your hearts for those who are in Christ. 
Not to be discouraged, not to be disheartened, but to look to Christ and and see that Christ um, is responsible for your salvation, you're not. That He will bring it to its end. That Paul already encourages them in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6, being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that is the gas. That's the fuel. That's the foundation upon which we work out our salvation. How? As God works in us. That number one this morning, take comfort in knowing that salvation, your salvation, is God's work. For it, How do I know that? Verse number 13 in the first portion, for it is God who works in you. Why should I work out my salvation for or because it is God who works in you? You can take comfort this morning and, and, and heart because you can, because because not because you have the strength, intellect, academia, or skill, or, or craftiness um, to make it to the end, but because in your working, God is working. That it is God who works in you to work, to will, and to do of His good pleasure. The word there, work, it literally it's, it's the same word that's used in verse number 12 to work out our own salvation. And we mentioned last week that it's the word for energy. It's literally energeto. It is a word that, that, that doesn't speak um, inherently of just a general type of, of utilization of energy. But it is an, a word that has with it a sense of work to accomplish something. An aim or a goal. And it's present tense. It's, it's, it could be translated in some sense, um, God is always presently acting to work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's speaking here in verse number 13 of the energy, the effective power of God Himself in action in the believer's life. One commentator writes, the note of effectiveness is sounded here by the verb which Paul uses, energeo, and which characteristically describes work, which achieves its purpose. The outcome is guaranteed in the deed. The verb is defined later in the same letter. When using the related noun, Paul speaks of the effective working in 3.21, by which he is able to subordinate all things to himself. God's working is an effectual working. He cannot be deflected from his course, nor fail to achieve his purpose. With our daily catalog of failure, he goes on to say, our, and our not infrequent despair of ourselves, what unspeakable comfort lies in this truth. End quote. What truth? That God is with us. That God has a name. That God has a purpose. That there are those out there today, and simply just want to briefly emphasize the work of God this morning as we approach the topic. And there are those out there that believe that God is some type of an impersonal God. Um... Now you have atheists, you have agnostics. Atheist boys and girls are those who don't believe in God. Agnostics are those who don't know if there's a God or they, they, they believe that they don't know. Many of those I've heard espoused, but if there is a God, He's a God who doesn't care. And there are many people who are what we might call deists. People who believe in God, but not a, a personal type of God. Not a God who relates. 
That He was the type of God, they believe, that created the heavens and the earth and put all matter and law into existence in a similar way as that clock back there on the wall. And once He got it running, He stepped back and just let it do its thing. Some believe that God is outside the world today and He is just watching things happen. He's impersonal. He doesn't relate. He's waiting to see, in some sense, what is happening. But the important thing to note is that this is not the testimony of Scripture. That God was a God at work before the heavens began. That God is not aimless. God is not purposeless. God is not um, unintentional. That what God started, started even before the world began. And that even in His creation, He worked six days and He rested. But in that rest, it's not a rest of throwing His hands down and watching the clock rotate 24-hour days for the last 10,000 years. He picks up a new work. And we see God purposefully, intentionally working all throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New. You find Him in the Garden of Eden walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day for a purpose. You find Him at work with Adam and Eve even after their sin. You find Him at work with Cain and Abel in their lives. You find Him at work in Noah's life. You find Him at work in Abraham's life. You find Him at work in Joseph's life. In Moses' life. You find Him active over and over again in the life and history of the nation of Israel. That God is a God who works. And He works for a purpose. And He works in His people to bring about that purpose. God is particularly all throughout the Scriptures at work about bringing about His plan of salvation. He begins that work seemingly in time and history I'm in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. As Adam and Eve fall in the garden, I mean, in that curse is a blessing as He brings it forth and He promises to bring a seed into this world that would crush the head of the serpent, yet it would bruise His heel. And from that moment, He's revealing His plan to the world. You go a little further and you see that even revealed more in His son Abel, in Adam's son Abel. We see that in the sacrifice that He brings, it is a type of the sacrifice that Christ would bring, that perfect beast, that perfect lamb that would, that would appease the wrath of God. You go a little further and you see it revealed in Noah. The grace of that ark. You see, Peter often referred to it, and even as baptism, that which now saves us, that Christ is that ark. And as Noah comes into that ark, He is secure from the wrath of God and all those who would enter in. And that we too, as we enter into Christ and are brought into union with Him, that God is working to secure us. You go a little farther and He reveals His Son in Abraham. You know? In so many ways, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, and that covenant that he would make, that, 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 that his seed would bless all the nations. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter number 3, that, that God's at work in saving the children of Abraham by faith, even under an old covenant. And then Abraham is commanded to take his son as an offering upon, uh, upon a mount. And, and willing to give His sacrifice as Christ would one day come. But, 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 but in that obedience, God supplies a ram that would substitute for Adam's son. And in a similar way, Christ would be the substitute of all those who would believe and repent as a righteous offering to appease the wrath of God. You go a little further and He reveals Himself to Moses in a, in a whole host of ways. You go a little further and He reveals Himself to the nation of Israel. 
What you find is you find that, that God is a God who works. He's not a God that's indifferent. He's not a God that's apathetic. He's not a God that, that, that doesn't understand. He, he understands so much that He sends His only Son into the world to secure that, so, so that, that salvation to the point that He can sympathize with our infirmities. Jesus Christ would enter into the world and take upon true work. He would get His... He would get down on his knees, he would get his hands dirty, and he would even be covered by that dirt in the grave. Why? So that you and I may live. He's working. He's working. Why? Because we're not. We're not. We're not. He's working in his people to bring about his end, the salvation of his people. Nothing saving them. Man won't. Find out in the Garden of Eden. All the way through the Scriptures, the testimony is 100% clear. But if God doesn't work, we will never be saved. If God doesn't do it, it won't be done. Thus in Jeremiah 31 and 31, we see the promise of a better covenant. New covenant. Behold, the days are coming. And this is in the context of the old covenant. But new, he says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And I take that to be God's people because of Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And that this is fulfilled in, in, the, in the people of God, at least now. In verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds, I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. What we see in the old covenant, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, is the testimony of God coming for His people. Planning to do that even before the world began, before the foundation was laid. Ephesians chapter number 1, Titus chapter number 1. Um, as we went over Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, this, this, this articulation of an arrangement between God the Father, Son, and Spirit before the world ever began to go in and to save a people for Himself. Manifest itself in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Thus God acts. God goes. Where do they go? Run to Him? No, they run behind a tree and God pursues them. What you find all throughout the Old Covenant is that in their failures, God's at work. He's pursuing. Why? Because He desires a people for themselves and they won't come. So Jeremiah 31, He promises a new covenant. A new covenant in which they will. Promises of the new covenant that He'll secure a people for Himself. A people that will walk after His statutes. Ezekiel 36. People that shall be my people, and I'll be their God, Jeremiah 32. I'll give them one heart, one way, and they'll fear me forever. And the blessings of this new covenant, God would supply for every believer, every member of that covenant, a circumcised heart. That they would be the true circumcision, Philippians 3.3. 3. For we are that circumcision, that who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. They would have the law of God written upon their heart. They would have the Spirit of God living and dwelling within them. They would have the personal knowledge of God. Eternal life. All will know me, they say. 
And John 17, 3 says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And God will fully forgive their sins, which is the testimony of Hebrews 8 and Hebrews chapter number 10. What you see, the story of redemption, the story of the Bible, the story of Old Covenant to New Covenant, is a people, a rebellious people at enmity with God, who are hostile towards Him, who won't come. Jesus goes. God comes in the power of the Father, and the power of the Spirit, sends His Son. Why? Because they won't come. They won't come. And He secures in this new covenant a salvation that within that promise they gain everything that they would need to not only be saved eternally, but also to be saved practically. Not only um, the, the, the power of sin eternally, but even the power now. That's what we see, that the conditions of faith, repentance, or even in this new covenant, that God would do what men would not do. You know? You want to talk about free will all the time. I thank God. They don't have libertarian free will. I thank God that, and sometimes because because if you leave man with his own free will, here's the problem: no man will be saved. But men can't come because men won't come. There's not been a man in all the ages who have who have looked up <laughs> conscious one day and just put two and two together and said, "I need to go to God." Now, J- James Montgomery Boyce. It's a lengthy quote, but I want to read it to you. He writes this concerning free will. He says, we will never understand the doctrine of God's working. And it's actually in relationship to this verse he writes. He says, we'll never understand the doctrine of God's working to form a person's will until we realize that apart from the work of God in his or her heart, through Jesus Christ, the person does not have free will where spiritual realities are concerned. I know some will want to reply, what? Do you mean to tell me that I cannot do anything I want to? And he says, my answer is yes. You can't. You have free will to decide certain things, he says. But you don't have the free will to decide all things. You can decide whether to go to work on Monday or to pretend that you're sick. You can order turkey over roast at a restaurant. But you can't exercise your free will in anything that offers your physical, intellectual, or spiritual capacities. By your own free will, you cannot decide that you're going to have a 50% higher IQ than you do now. Or that you have a or that you will have a gift of dealing with quantum mechanics. You don't have free will to make a billion dollars. You do not have free will to to run the 100-yard dash in eight seconds. And I can tell you that's true, because I went to the gym last week. It didn't matter how much I willed it. (laughs) It still hurts. It wasn't eight seconds. He goes on to say, you don't have free will in anything intellectual or physical. Most significantly, just as you don't have free will intellectually or physically, so you don't have free will spiritually. You can't choose God. And I'm going to argue that you can't choose God because you won't choose God. It's in your nature to choose sin and sin alone. You don't want God. He goes on to say Adam had free will, but he lost it. And all people since are without it until he's recreated to them by the Holy Spirit. He says, let me give you an illustration. It is as if a, God, if it is as if a person were standing on the edge of a muddy pit with slippery slides. As long as he's on the edge, he has free will. He can either stay on the bank or jump in. But if he decides to jump in, his free will's lost. It's his loss as far as getting out of the pit is concerned. 
He has free will to walk around the bottom or to sit down. He has free will to try to scramble up the side or to accept, accept his plight philosophically. He has free will to cry out or to, to, for help or to be silent, to be angry or complacent. But he does not have the will, again, to be on the edge of the embankment. This is what happened in Adam and Eve. And I think that's true. They were created on the edge of a pit. God said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. This was a test case. Adam and Eve had free will to obey or disobey the commandment. When they disobeyed, they fell away from God. They lost their will to choose God and they proved it by running away from God when He came to them to see them in the garden. Since Adam and Eve, all people were born with that same ability to choose Him without it. Some are complacent, some are angry, some are silent, some are philosophical, some are resigned, some are anxious, but all are unable to come to God. In some sense, what he's arguing that, that Adam and Eve, when they fell in, they took with them their posterity, their seed, and as we're born in the pit, we won't come to God. No one comes to God, he says, until God reaches down by grace to the mud pit of human sin and impotence and lifts Him up and places Him on the bank and says, this is the way, walk in it. This is what God does in salvation, he says. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who understands, no, not one who seeks after God, Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. The Bible says that we are born again, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or will, or of a husband's will, but born of God, John chapter 1 and verse number 12. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws them. We must face this truth, he says. Even, in every, even if every generation of mankind in every city and village on the earth had a John the Baptist to point them to Jesus Christ and to call us to Him, apart from the supernatural work of God in human hearts, no one would come. That's what we're arguing. If that's the overarching testimony of Scripture, so many people want to argue um, this idea of just total freedom, liberty to come to God as if they actually would. But the reality of Scripture and the reality of my own heart is that you give me a million years. What they picture is they picture this ideal of a king in heaven or a king over a kingdom. And it's like these people are trying to get in and, and he's mean because he just won't let them in and open the doors up. Uh, not knowing that, that, that that's not the picture at all. That what you have is the most glorious king in all the world and a rebellious people outside the gates trying to overthrow the king. So what does he do? He sends them his prince. Surely they'll listen to the prince, but they don't. The parable in Luke tells us that they killed the son and they sought to just overthrow. That's Jesus Christ sends, or comes into the world and dies for that people. Why? To make rebels saints so that they will come. He goes on to say, if God rearranged the stars of heaven and spell out, um, quote, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, no one would believe. God sent his angels with the sound of the celestial trumpet to call us to repentance. No one would repent. If you've come to God, it is only because God has first come to you. Entered your life by his Holy Spirit to quicken your will, to open your eyes to the truth, to draw you irresistibly to himself. It is only after this that you're able to choose the path that he sets before you. That's the testimony of Scripture. It's not a testimony of innocent men, good people, walking throughout this life and God is keeping them out of heaven. Since the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve has sought to overthrow God by becoming equal with Him. And that is the testimony of all of us, friends. 
Born into this world, um, bent towards rebelling against Jesus Christ. And one day, Jesus Christ, by the power of His gospel and the Spirit of God, goes out into our ears and into the depths of our souls and brings dead men to life and saves rebels for Himself to serve Him out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's the story of Scripture. And it will not just be a few frozen chosen. It will be a number which cannot be numbered, Revelation chapter 5 says. It's going to be incalculable out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. We will gather together on that great day and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ Himself. That that is what God is at work doing. He's been at work doing that prior to even creation. And He's in, he's in the business of doing that even now through the, through the preaching of the Gospel, the good news, and the power of the Spirit. He's reaching into rebels' hearts and making them saints. That's the good news. That God's at work. And that He's the one that saves. And whether you agree with most or if any of that at all, I hope this morning that you'll walk away understanding that salvation is God's work. No man can save himself. And because no man wants to save himself. Every man wants to be God. He wants to, to rival Him. He wants to say, I will, not thy will be done. And thus Jesus Christ enters into the work of the power of the Gospel to save those men. That is what, it's, it's God's salvation of us. Not our own. No man could work, labor, long generations to save himself. But take comfort this morning. You didn't save yourself, friends. Number two, you won't keep yourself. But one of the ways in which God saves you ultimately is God to save you um, not only eternally, but temporally. God's work is the means by which He accomplishes that end. See, what you'll find in Scripture is that oftentimes salvation is represented in multiple tenses. What I mean by that is, boys and girls, that God saves us past, God saves us present, and God saves us future. Paul uses all of these. Romans chapter, or Ephesians chapter 2, and verse number 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved. What we refer to as sanctification is God's saving us now. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. And our final salvation, we often refer to as glorification, that final salvation in which we'll be like Him. We'll see Him face to face. And we'll spend all of eternity with Him without even the possibility of sinfulness. So we, are, we have been saved. We are being saved. And one day we will be saved. And in Philippians chapter number 2 and verse number 13, we see that activity of God, that sanctifying work of Him saving us now. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. That the means and manner by which God accomplishes the work of salvation and are being saved now is by the Spirit of God implanted in you through that new covenant promise working in you inside and out. Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So God not only saved you legally and declared you righteous, but contained within the new covenant promises was the means to accomplish that to the end, that you might persevere. How are you going to get to the end? How are you going to run the race? Who here is strong enough? Who here can endure? 
Who here is intellectual enough? You know? Who here is crafty enough? Who here can build the Tower of Babel high enough to the heavens to make it to the end? Testimony of Scripture, no one. No one has ever. Listen, if you're going to make it, it's going to be on the grace of God. You came to Him by grace and you will only make it to the end and persevere and endure because of His grace and work in you. That's the argument. Work and labor. Be diligent. Work out your salvation. But know this, that if anything is going to be accomplished in you, it's going to be by the energizing work of the Spirit of God. That He's the one that keeps you. There's anything good in me. There's anything great in me. There's anything righteous in me. I have nothing to boast. Nothing at all. I didn't wake up this morning you know, and spiritually put two and two together on my own and think, man, that'll make me more faithful. You know, I don't want to pray more today. <laughs> that was pretty bright of me, wasn't it? I just think, like, what, what an amazing person I am. I just woke up this morning with just, and I thought, I should evangelize more. I don't know what's been keeping me from this until this day. No, it's the work of God in us. That, that if I desire to pray, it's only because He's there. If I desire to evangelize, it's because it pleases Him. It's because the energizing work is because of the work of God in me. It is the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God to places and the recesses of my soul, um, brings me to godly sorrow, and gives me the faith to get up and to walk and to war in that path. The reason, church, that you can take comfort this morning is in, in, in this life and be encouraged this morning is because your salvation was not only not bought by you and secured by your own effort, but it won't be in this life either. That God is at work in you. If you have Christ this morning, then He is at work in you and He will complete it until the day of Christ. You must know that your work and labor is diligent and consistent as it may be. Will profit you nothing apart from the energizing work of the Spirit of God. But that's the practical application. We have to realize that. That, that, that if we're going to finally be saved, persevere until the end, that we need the Spirit of God. If anything is going to be accomplished in this life, it will be because God does it. Thus, we must, um, we must have a practical sense, spiritual sense of dependency upon the Lord. That is, the be- and, the, and the sooner that we understand that, the better. That is, that the power that saved you is now the power that works in you. And it is that same power that will keep you. It is by the power of God that you will grow. It is by the energizing work of the Spirit that you'll... That, that, that's the only hope you ever have to, to kill sin in your life. But if you're going to mortify sin and produce any fruit, it's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. It's not going to be your own. But if you're going to be profitable in this life, you need to understand that you won't do it by your own strength. You'll do it because it's God that works in you. And that He is the power that will finally take you on into glory. That this is all of God. So I don't agree with a lot of the things you said. Then agree with me, this the salvation is all of God. He's the one that works in us. He's the one that worked it. He's the one that works in us. And He's the one that will finally work it out. And for later, Ephesians 1.25 speaks of that same resurrection power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is working in you. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, the Apostle says something very similar. Galatians 2.20, you know what Paul says? The key to his Christian life was, he says, I live, yet not I. 
but Christ lives in me. How will you persevere? How will you labor to the end? How will you endure by the grace of God? And you will do it the same way that you came to Christ, holy by faith, holy by grace, holy by repentance, which is too um, the very gift of God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. Paul brings a reproach and rebukes these foolish Galatians. And he says this to them, Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This I want to learn from you. This is the only thing I want to learn, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, therefore He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does He do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And what he's saying is, is he's saying that, that Galatians had such a wonderful start. And they were, they, were, they were brought to God and to salvation by the grace of God. And inevitably what has happened is a legalistic spirit and now they're trying to progress by the law, by strength, not by faith, and by, by, by the flesh, not by spirit. They're not walking according to the Spirit as in Ephesians chapter 4. They're not walking by the Spirit as in Galatians chapter number 5. Um, they're walking by the flesh. And he's saying that if you're going to make it, you're only going to make it on the power of the Spirit of God. It is the power of Christ working in you. It is Christ dwelling in you. And that will be the only reason that you persevere to the end. It's the only reason. And it's more than a formality. It's our life. It's serious. It's joyful, yes, but it's sober. Jesus Christ bought you and He takes up residence in you and, he, and you belong to Him, beloved. Do you not know that you were bought with a price? No wonder Paul says we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Think about the sins that you committed this morning. Think about how in the old covenant nothing was to even be brought into the presence of God that was defiled. And think about all the defilements that you brought into the very presence of God as He lives and dwells in you. No wonder we're to live in fear and trembling. Yet at the same time, think about the grace that He gave you this morning. That He's even utilizing that for the glory of His Son as He brings you to faith and repentance to mortify those deeds and to make you more like His Son, think about the grace this morning. If you're a believer, if you came to Christ by faith and repentance, He's forgiven your sins and take comfort this morning. It's because God's at work in you. As you have been placed into that root in John chapter 15, as you abide in Christ, the very Spirit and power of God flows in and through you to bring you to the end of yourself, to work out your salvation, to produce the fruit of God in your life. Colossians 3 verse 5 
tells us that we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. How do you do that? Romans 8.13, by the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. That God enables that which is pleasing in His sight. Calvin calls God's powerful, energizing grace in the work of the Spirit the true engine for battling sin. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 6, Paul illustrates for us there and instructs us that, that we are all have a diversity of gifts and activities, but it's all the same Spirit that works all in all. The spiritual gifts have a part, have in part the purpose of manifesting the Spirit of God in the fellowship of the believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 7. What's the point? Their obedience to Jesus Christ is the result of God working in their wills that they would do of His good pleasure. John Murray says, quote, God's working in us is not to be suspended because we work. Nor is our work suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation as if God did His part and we're to do ours. So that the conjunction and coordination of both produced the required result. God works and we work, he says. But the relation is, is because that God works. We work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. This is what he's saying. He's saying this isn't a 50-50 rule. Now, it's not as if you give 50% and God gives 50%. No, you give all because God gives all. And the reason that we give any is because God is working in us. That the foundation and fruit is because we are rooted in Christ. That He is working in us. And if there's any good thing in us, any righteous activity, any holy desire, it's because God's working in us. And that if you look at your life this morning and you see that you are laboring and working by faith and take heart and be encouraged that it is God in you because otherwise you wouldn't desire it, church. You would. You would. How easy it is to get disheartened and discouraged as we look in the mirror and fail to look at Christ. And even when we look at the labor of our hands, oftentimes we look at it so naturally that it discourages us more because... Like me, many of us are legalists by nature, wanting to appease God, wanting to make Him love me, knowing that He already does. And that the reason that I love Him is because He loves me. And that's the only reason. And I'm not working and laboring for that love, I'm working and laboring in that love, but to, 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 to will and to work for His good pleasure. And if that's, here, if that's in you this morning, take heart, it's God at work, not you. You don't desire that. You don't want that by nature. Not for Him. Not for His glory. Not for His pleasure. But if it's there, then take heart because God is at work. Be encouraged because it's God who is working in and through you. Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God is working in you and outside of you for that purpose. Because it pleases Him. Both to will and to do, both internally and externally. The Spirit of God produces in believers both the desire to live righteously and the effective energy to do so. That holiness this morning is not merely an external.
external performance of duty. You need to know that. And I'm not arguing this morning that just because externally you're here and you've given some service to the external body that you can be encouraged. Actually, for some of you, you're just more accountable to God in your legalistic heart. That what Paul is arguing for here is, is that the Spirit of God is working in you to work out of you um, the work that He has for you to do. What do I mean by that? That God, that the Spirit of God is energizing the work in you, in your will. That God's working touches the deepest springs of the soul. The deepest depths of my personality at the level of my, my will. That He's working in me to will. For His good pleasure. You could break that statement up there. That He is working in me to will, to desire, to want. That, that, to take all the faculties of everything that I am. The whole man. And soul, spirit, body, uh, mind, intellect, will. God is at work. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in. Writes upon uh, uh, my heart. The law of God. Takes the Word of God to the depths and recesses. To even make my will His will. Such that when I cry out to God in prayer. It's, not, it's no longer for frivolous things but it is thy will be done thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven for God's people this is, this is in some sense a sacrifice of the will and self denial yes but, but as you grow in Christ your will becomes His will and your prayers are His prayers and you're crying out for, for, for His things thus, thus you could almost say um, that in, a, in a righteous manner that I am praying my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because my will is His will. That He's working in me to will what He wills. That I'm taking pleasure in His pleasure. That my will, that I've, I've sacrificed as Christ and practically everything that I once desired and as He's operating within me, He's transforming me by the renewing of my mind and making my will into His will. That's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Right? Well, we are predestined to be what conformed to the very image of Christ. That the goal of the Christian life is not to, not to manipulate your hands to look like a Christian this morning. You know, the goal of the Spirit of God is to work in you by the truth of God's Word, by the power of His Spirit to conform your will to His will, such that when you kneel down uh, at your bed at night, or you're there with your wife or your children, or within the church, you're crying out for things that are things you desire. But it's because He desires it. You know, I take great heart on many days because of the work of Christ in me. As a young boy with a plan and a purpose of his own to be something great because his family wasn't, to do something for his children because his father would not, to be something high and holier than thou, and to be able to be totally independent, God comes in and just the power of the gospel rearranges the soul of this young man such that now today um, he's, he's making me more like him. You know? Not that we have anything to boast, but many of you understand that. The things you once used to love, you love no more. The things that you used to desire, you desire no more. The things you used to take pleasure in, you take pleasure in no more. You know, man didn't have to, pastor didn't have to pry it from your hands because the work of the Spirit of God energized your soul and changed it such that now you love what God loves. 
You know? See, you lay aside these purposes and these plans and these desires. And, and, it, and it truly is. As Jesus says, take upon my... He says, come unto me all you that labor and heavy lay, take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. But to walk with Christ is truly easy. As the Spirit of God works in you. To wield and to do of His good pleasures. As the psalmist says in, in 119 verses 36 and through 40. On many occasions incline my heart to your testimonies. God make my heart your heart. Father stir in me what your son desires. Make it one with you. Such that, that, that there's a, a, a hard line. You can't draw a hard line between where I start and where Christ works. You ever wonder that? You ever question your own motives? And ask your question and ask ask yourself and ask God, Father, I don't know if I did that for you today. I don't know where sometimes to, to draw the line where the spirits at work or whether I'm at work. I don't know if I was selfish of me. And in some sense it was selfish of me. But, 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 but possibly even in a godly sense. That I wanted it. Because I took pleasure and joy in it because it honors Christ. You ever desired that? Have your will for one thing ever been so in tune with Christ that you could say, Thy will be done, but my will be done because it's the same. That's the goal. I'm not saying that I've accomplished it on many days, but that's what God does. God takes that dead man, brings him to life, puts in him a new heart in which His law is written upon it. And the Spirit of God throughout the life of a believer is energizing, taking the Word of God, renewing his mind and changing his will to, to, to God's will. Such that you desire the things of God and from that He enables you to do the work that He has given you a heart for. Thus he says, I not only desire to, he says, I not only work in you to will for my good pleasure, but also to do for my good pleasure. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, don't you hate it when you have a desire to do something, but you can't? I mean, it's just, it's the most tragic of internal tragedies. Um, when there's a desire within you and you know that that's, that's everything that you're supposed to live for and take pleasure in, but you don't have the means to accomplish it. Um, as I was thinking about this, I thought about the Old Testament as the, 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 the Egyptians were, were cursing in some sense the Jews. And what did they do to punish them? They told them to make brick, but they withheld the straw. <laughs> you know? They said, do this, but I'm not going to give you the means to accomplish that. So many Christians live like that today. You know, they look at the promises of God and they think, man, that's high and lofty, but I'll never be able to do that. I could never accomplish that. I'll never mortify that sin in my life. I'll never make it to the ends of the earth with the gospel. That person could never be saved. Is God, in, is God a tyrant in Egypt? Or is He the King of kings and Lord of lords who is working in His people to bring about His end? And is, is He going to put a desire in your heart and your life that is in one with the Father, one with the Son, and one with the Spirit, but He's going to say, make the brick with no straw. No, He gives you all resources and divine blessings in heavenly places to accomplish the work for which He has given you the desire. So run for it, friends. Go after it, church. Men, find out what the will of God is for your life, even your sanctification, and run with it by faith. That's humility. It's not groveling at home wondering, where's God at? 
Will he meet me there? You know, it's, 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 it's the energizing work of the Spirit of God changing your will to His. And you begin to love those things and you pick it up and you run after it. And know, and you need to know and be, take heart this morning and go with courage and boldness. Why? Because God is energizing you not only to change you internally and give you desires that you never desired before, but He is more than able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. So do. God not only changes your will, but He enables you by the Spirit of God to accomplish that will. He not only changes your desires, but if they're truly godly desires, I have no doubt in my mind that God will secure the means by which to accomplish that end. You know? That God, if He desires it of you, man, He'll empower you to do it. Ladies, if God desires it of you, he has more than in the heavens and the earth to supply you with the means to accomplish that, you know? So many men, so many women have a desire for evangelism and they're like, I can't do that. I could never do that. Who can? Let me ask you that. Who can? You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. I mean, men almost bowed down before him. Um, because of the type of preacher he was in the ministry that he had. You know what the secret to his ministry was? Every time before he'd mount the pulpit, um, he would step up those stairs on those old English chapels and he'd say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It wasn't in his own flesh. He rested wholly upon the grace of God and dependence upon Him to supply the need for the desire that he had. Thus we are to preach effectively, not because we are effective preachers, but because we have an effectual working in us, and that is God by His Spirit who is working to, to accomplish what He desires. Thus God is the, the means to accomplish that this morning. Your salvation, finally and fully, is the Spirit of God working in you to will and to do for what? For His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. And this is one that will just rub a lot of people the wrong, wrong way. Um... I mean, what about my pleasure? Why is he the one that, you know, we have all those questions. But his pleasure doesn't have to be the, at the expense of your pleasure, does it? Not when your pleasure is his pleasure. That he's not leaving you out here and keeping it all to himself. No, he's changed you and your will to will and to do of his good pleasure. So when you when he when it says here in Philippians chapter number two that he that he's working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure, in some sense you could almost say, um, correlating that of my good pleasure. If your pleasure is his pleasure. His delight is what it means. His enjoyment. His great satisfaction. Psalm 115.3 Is He not worthy? Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Isn't that just amazing? When you put it in the context of what we're talking about this morning, isn't that an amazing statement? That God takes delight, satisfaction, and pleasure in this morning. Even generations removed in us. Doesn't it, isn't it just that the one who is completely self-sufficient, does it not make you wonder this morning how it could be that a pot full of sinners could add anything to his satisfaction? It's because he's working in them. He's working in them. It pleases God this morning to grant to a bunch of sinners 
salvation full and free and to put his spirit in them to conform them to the very image of Christ. It pleases him this morning to give you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It pleases him this morning to give you all things pertaining to life and godliness. That this is his great end. That God strives with his creatures because it pleases him to do so. This pleases him this morning. This. Out of all things. Out of all things that I would take pleasure in. You know, in and of myself, and of all the things of the world, this is what pleases him this morning. This has always been his goal. This has always been his delight. This has always been his great end that God strives with his creatures because it simply pleases him to do so. That he does it for his great pleasure. That he's the ultimate end. God's at work. What is it? Revelation, or Romans chapter number 11 says, is by him, through him, and to him are all things. God created all things. He sustains all things. Why? Because He desires all things for His glory. That's what Paul's arguing here in Philippians um, as well. Take comfort this morning. In what? In knowing that it is God who saved us. Take comfort this morning in knowing that it is God who works in us and will ultimately save us in that glorifying way. Take heart this morning that God is working and our working are simultaneous realities. You may walk away this morning and be like, oh, God's at work. I don't have to do anything. Now, what you find out in Philippians chapter number two is that these are simultaneous realities. And really, the only evidence that you have that God is working is that you're working. And that your desires are His desires. So don't take heart this morning simply because you're working. But take heart this morning because you're working because He's working. It's because God's in you. It's because God's changing you. You know, that the reality of God's work is not suspended because we work. So work. And it's actually that in our work that God works. So work. Work hard. Work diligently. Work laboriously. Work faithfully. And work in faith. And give all, God all the glory. Give God all the glory. And this is illustrated all throughout the scriptures. Exodus 14. You can go home and read it, boys and girls. It's one of those faithful stories of Moses and the Red Sea. And you may ask, who parted the Red Sea? You read that text, was it God or was it Moses? The answer is yes. <laughs> that it was God. But at the same time, it was Moses. That Moses worked out what God had worked in. And in that faithful, faithful obedience... God manifested His presence in such a way that, that believers as well as unbelievers took note. But that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about just working. We're talking about faithfully working and as you work, God works. But this is the key to the Christian. This is one of the great keys to the Christian life. Depend wholly upon Him. Yet at the same time, work and labor like your life depended upon it. Think of it in regard to prayer. You know, think of it in regard to this morning. I mean, if God does not work this morning, our prayers don't leave the room. And if they do, they lie upon dead minds and dead consciences. And we keep, we, har we keep a safe, we harbor them as vigilantes and criminals against God. But listen, 
If we're wholly dependent upon God, believing that He is able. But if God does work. So, so if God doesn't work, it stays here. But what if God does work? What if God does work? What if this morning prayer actually takes place? And we enter into the very throne room of grace, the King of heaven and earth. And we enter in boldly, um, interceding for things that are immeasurable and incalculable. Then we have the ability to not only enter into the throne room of heaven this morning, but all throughout the world. We have the ability this morning as we work for God to work in and through us to accomplish things that are not even temporally here. But it can work in the Nichols life. It can work in compassionate hope in those little ones. It can work in your life and in your family's life. That the gospel can go to the ends of the earth and we don't move this place. We don't move from this place this morning. Why? Because God's at work in your work. What about in regard to evangelism? You know, this weekend we went, what if God doesn't carry, what if God does not carry our feeble attempts? Then at best, you know, we've done nothing but convince unbelievers to assent to points of data concerning God. If God doesn't empower our words, then at best we convince them of our position and make them more, their punishment in hell greater because now they're more accountable because they've rejected Christ in the light of clear knowledge. But what if God does work? And we depend wholly upon the Spirit of God. And God can take our feeble attempt and possible murdering of the gospel message into the darkest of souls and give eyes to the blind. He can do the impossible. How? Through our work. That He is working in our work. Think of it in regard to preaching. I mean, if God's not at work, then I just bored you for an hour. You know? And made some of you mad. <laughs> made contention in your heart. But if God does work, in my word, if I'm wholly dependent upon Him. I don't know if I've ever preached a message like that. Oh, but I want to. And, and the preaching which is foolishness to men is power to God. And He could accomplish things in the hearts of people as you receive it this morning. Faithfully hearing the Word of God. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness to conform you to the very image of Christ. That you could leave here displaying the glory of Christ as a, as a city upon a hill. As a, as a light that's not hidden under a bushel. Such that it can influence and change all of those people around you. Men can go home and be lights to their wives and children. The Gospel can go forth in marriages. Why? Because you're more holy now. Why? Because God's at work through the work that we accomplished this morning. That we have at our fingertips in our work. If God is at work, eternal things. So let us depend wholly upon God this morning. But if we don't depend wholly upon God, we rely upon our own strength, then it's worse than not doing anything. We just condemn ourselves more. You know? And you're just more accountable to God this morning because I preached a long sermon. You know, but if God's at work, then dead men come to life. Husbands are empowered. Wives are able to do eternal things. Children are coming to Christ. The world's being reached with the gospel. This is God's work. Is your work God's work? Do you take pleasure in His pleasure? Is the, is the work of the Spirit operating in such a will to change your will into His will? Men who would never come to men who, where, else, where we say with the apostles or the disciples, Lord, where else can we go? Where else? I have nowhere else to go this morning. 
The Lord's there. There's nowhere else. I don't care what the temperature is. I don't care where the vacation spot is. There's nowhere else. There's nothing more beautiful than this. To the world, you know, it looks like a, a crazy, zealous group of, <laughs> of nutcases gathering together. And they could be spending their life eat, drinking, and being merry. But what God says is that when the people of God gather together, there He is in the midst. He's walking among the candlesticks. He's at work accomplishing eternal things. Do you believe that by faith this morning? If that's the case, then let's work. Let us labor. Why? Because God is at work in us. Why? For His good pleasure. His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the time that we have to spend together. Father, I'm going to be honest with you. As I said in the, you know in the sermon, and I'll be accountable for that. Sometimes I don't know if it's me or if it's you. I don't know if I preached or if you preached. I don't know if I was working if you were working. But I pray, Father, that you would work. I pray that you would use my work for your work. I pray, Father, that it wasn't just my work. And if it was, Father, I pray that you'll do what's necessary to remove me. That I may not be a stumbling block to the people of God. Father, would you work? Would you labor? Would you do? Father, even in my own heart, what only you can do. Father, I I can accomplish many things this morning. But what you can accomplish, Father, is so much the more. I have a desire for the message. Father, your desire matters so much more. I just pray that my desire is in line with your desire and my work is in line with your work. And that, Father, you'd use it. If not, Father... Change my spirit. Transform me, Father, by the renewing of my mind that you may accomplish the word. Father, give us as the people of God a desire to that not only be said individually but corporately. Father, that we'd be unified around the gospel and that we would as a people be engaged in that work. Father, we, we desire to see you accomplish eternal things. Father, save souls by the power of your spirit. Father, transform lives. Father, strengthen marriages. Save our children, Father, by the power of the gospel and use us to bring the gospel light to bear upon these tri-cities, Father, and upon the nations insofar as you would allow us. Father, I pray that that would be our greatest pleasure. Not because we're selfish, but because we're not. Because, Father, you've transformed our will and given us the faith to believe that we can do according to your work and according to your will. That all the earth may know that there is a God in heaven and his name is Jesus Christ. And that it is incumbent upon them to bow down and worship him even this very day. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing a song.